every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis. A warm welcome to Money Talk for Thursday, the 15th of February, the first show in the Year of the Dragon. I hope you had a great Lunar New Year holiday and I wish you a very happy Year of the Dragon. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the consumer price index in the United States increased 0.3% in January. That was slightly higher than expected. Analysts had expected a monthly increase of 0.2% and an annual gain of 2.9% on a 12-month basis. Inflation climbed 3.1%, which was down from 3.4% in December. Interest rate futures, which before Tuesday's report implied the central bank would probably begin cutting rates by its May meeting, now suggest a June start is more likely. Mike Gallagher, head of the U.S. House China Committee, will visit Taipei next week with a group of lawmakers in a show of support for William Lai ahead of his May inauguration as president of Taiwan. Washington has warned China ahead uh, not to engage in aggressive activity towards Taiwan in the run-up to the inauguration. When Mr Lai will succeed Tsai Ing-wen as president, China in turn has repeated its long-standing criticism that the US shouldn't meddle in Taiwan. China said it firmly opposes illegal sanctions in a response to a European Union proposal to impose trade restrictions on three Chinese firms accused of supporting Russia's war in Ukraine. We're aware of the irrelevant reports. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs says China firmly opposes illegal sanctions or long-arm jurisdiction against China on the grounds of cooperation between China and Russia. Brussels is considering new restrictions on about two dozen firms, including three based in China and one in India. Unofficial results from the Indonesian presidential election predict a win for Defence Minister Prabowo Subianto. Millions of people across Indonesia's 17,000 islands and three time zones have now voted for their future president. Unofficial quick count results are showing Prabowo Subianto in the lead, but if no one secures a simple majority, a runoff vote will be held in June. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Hao Hong, Chief Economist at Grow Investment Group. And discussing the latest developments in the oil markets is Vandana Hari, founder of Vandu Insights. And if you have any questions on the show or any comments, please go to my website and post them there, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street's Wednesday, US stocks rebounded from Tuesday's big sell-off following the CPI reports. The S&P 500 advanced 1% to finish at 5,001 after falling 1.4% in the prior session. The Dow added 152 points, that's 0.4%, closing at 38,424. On Tuesday, the Dow lost 1.4% for its worst day since March 2023. The Nasdaq Composite climbed 1.3% to settle at 15,859. And the small cap Russell 2000 index, which slid 4% Tuesday in its worst day since June 2022, recovered some of its losses, closing 2.4% higher. Traders bought short-dated U.S. government debt, with the yield on two-year treasuries falling nine basis points to 4.57% after they surged by 19 basis points on Tuesday, and the 10-year yield dropped six basis points to 4.27%. 
The US dollar index retreated 0.1% to 104.72 after jumping 0.7% Tuesday in the wake of the hot CPI report. And the yen is in focus, having hit the 150 level again, prompting comments from BOJ officials. It ended the day at 150.5 against the dollar, and the currency has now slumped past the level that spurred previous interventions by the Japanese government. Spot gold ended the day 0.1% lower at $1,991 per ounce. Crude oil futures fell Wednesday, giving up gains from earlier in the session as stockpiles surged in the US while demand fell. The Brent contracts for April settled at $81.60 a barrel. That's down 1.4% on the day. And Bitcoin has regained $1 trillion in market cap. And Bitcoin also broke through the $51,000 level. That's the first time it's hit that price since December 2021. On Wednesday, Bitcoin ended the US trading session at $51,625. That's a gain of 4% on the day. And in Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index reversed early losses of 1.8% to gain 133 points, or 0.9%, to end at 15,879 on the first day of trading since a two-day break for the Lunar New Year holidays. And that follows a record 29% slide in the last year of the rabbit. The tech index rallied 2.3%. Markets in mainland China are closed for the entire week for the holidays. And traders face news that index provider MSCI is removing 66 companies from its MSCI China index in its latest quarterly review. That's the highest tally in at least two years. Futures markets pointing to a gain of about 80 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. That's about half a percent. Index projected to open at around about 15,960. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Let's welcome our guests. We have with us Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Good morning, Peter. And also with us is Hal Hong, who's Chief Economist at Grow Investment Group. Morning to you, Hal. Morning, Peter. Uh, as we heard there in the introduction, the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, increased 0.3% in January, slightly higher than expected. On a 12-month basis, inflation climbed 3.1%. That is down from 3.4% in December. A key subset of services prices, though, advanced by the most in nearly two years, and sh- and shelter costs heated up. Shelter prices were the largest contributor, jumping 0.6% on the month, contributing more than two-thirds of that headline um, increase. Inflation has been falling for the past year and a half, but the numbers released Tuesday showed inflation to be higher than forecasters expected. And the increase likely delays any Federal Reserve interest rate cuts. Um, Andrew, um, we don't like talking too much about the Fed, do we? But the, the market's got really um, in quite a steam about this uh, un- uh, this sort of lower than expected decline in, uh, in, uh, in inflation. Have, have they got it all wrong? I mean, inflation is still going down, isn't it? Albeit just not quite as much as they hoped. Well, actually, no, Peter, it, it is not going down. It's going all over the place. I mean, it is just not true that the trend is there. I'll just give you the last four figures, okay, October, November, December, to show you that the Fed really has got uh, its job cut out for it. 3.2, 3.1, 3.4, 3.1. Sorry, what's that? In other words, it ain't going down. Going down means that for uh, over a six-month period, 
at least it slips by perhaps 10 basis points every time. So if the Fed looks at these numbers, they can't possibly say, well, you know, we are getting there to 2%. No, we're not. Unless the Fed changes its, its, its target, then looking at these numbers, the markets have got every right to feel disturbed about it because these are not the kind of numbers that the Fed is going to use itself and say, yes, it is going down and it's going to stay down. That is the other important part. It's no good. I'm sorry, I'm taking a little bit of time over that. It's like going 10, 9, 8, 7. Good, it's going down. But if it's going, going 10, 9, 8, 8, 8, 9, 8, 7, 9, 8, 8, it's not going down. Mm. So the Fed wants to see it going down and staying down. And it's not. God, it's a little bit long-winded. They're not in glad, exactly Nobel Prize winning stuff. But that's the answer to that, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so when you when you read out those numbers, the way it sounds, it actually sounds like inflation has stalled out at current levels. Yeah, if effectively, that's what I said. It is not going anywhere, mm. meaning it's not going up, it's not going down, and it's not staying steady. So that's why the poor Fed is also going a little bit uh, you know, neurotic and it's climbing up the wall. Mm. There isn't a real trend. And remember, I'm not I'm not doing Fibonacci curves kind of stuff. <laughs> I'm simply clenching my teeth, squinting my eye, putting the thing a little better further away from my from my eyes, and I said, Where is the trend going? It ain't mm. going anywhere. How what are, what are your thoughts? If inflation in the US has a stalled out at current levels, then that's not what investors want to see, is it? Yeah, well, I think the market was uh, over optimistic in the sense that, you know, it was hoping uh, inflation to come down uh, in a straight line and then, you know, the Fed would cut in, start cutting in March. Mm. I mean, obviously, it's overhyped. Uh, I think, you know, as Andrew said, you know, inflation is going all over the place. But I think the PC uh, inflation is coming down, which is the uh, the key figure that the Fed is, is watching out for. Uh, so I think, you know, the past two rate cut obviously uh, it's not going to be as smooth as the market is expecting and i think uh, the overcapacity problem in china is starting to uh, to export deflation uh, to the world uh, and also the cheap uh, chinese currency as well uh, so i think it, it, so in 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 this way you know inflation pass uh, at least for the first half of the year uh, should be coming down but then at the same time, it's not coming down as fast as the market is hoping for. Mm. So investors have got to really reassess, haven't they? Because they've spent really the first part of this year just arguing that the Fed was taking too long uh, to start cutting um, rates. But then when you see data like this, it, it is a warning, isn't it, that inflation could be sticky. There are risks uh, to the upside as well. And it's, it's not, certainly not going to go down in a straight line. Yeah, well, obviously, um, the slack in the labor market is not emerging, right? So mm -hmm. even though the uh, the rent cost, uh, as everybody was watching, uh, is coming down because of the uh, base effect, but the labor market is showing strong resilience. Right? So there are layoffs here and there, but overall, you know, job creation and also unemployment uh, number is very low. Uh, so I think people just have to be patient. But having said that, though, you know, the Fed is not cutting. It's an, it's an acknowledgement of the strengths in the U.S. economy. So it may not necessarily be, be the bad news. And that is the reason why the market has one day correction, uh, which is quite large uh, in terms of size. Uh, but then, you know, last night starting to rebound again. Mm -hmm. Andrew, I mean, Jerome Powell has said he wants to see more evidence that inflation is returning to the Fed's 2% goal and that he's talking about there um, 
the PCE index, which is going to come out uh, later this month. But nevertheless, is he seeing any signs that inflation is getting to its 2% goal that's going to make him start thinking this is the time to start cutting rates? You know, this is this is the bad idea of people like Powell saying something firmly and then perhaps living to regret it. I still have noted down in my diary and not going to remove it there. But six months ago, he said, I am not, I don't believe we're going to see inflation at 2% even in the year 2025. <laughs> oh, that mm. was year 23 when he said that. So we have the whole year of 24 and possibly the whole year of 25 before we see inflation down at five. Um, we see inflation down firmly at 2%. Yeah. Remember, this is this is the thankless task of me simply repeating what Powell has said, as opposed to me telling you intelligently and frowning that I have done an econometric model of the inflation and I'm forecasting where it's going to go. In other words, I haven't done exactly that, but looking at the components of what drives the inflation and looking at the rest of what is driving the American economy, I just can't see a trend developing that will be firmly nearly 30% or more than the current rate. It's as simple as that. Mm. It ain't going away. What can we do about it? How, Except how, keeping it up, of course. <laughs> how, how you, you mentioned uh, in, your, in your last comment about China's deflation. Um, we saw China's consumer prices fall at the fastest rate in 15 years in January. Is that going to be exported um, overseas? Well, if you look at the uh, import price in the U.S., right, it's, it's coming down. It's slipping into a de- deflationary territory. Right? So to me, it's a very strong evidence that China is exporting in, uh, uh, disinflation, at least, to the world. Uh, and also, as you see, the Chinese um, currency uh, is, is staying weakish. Right? Mm-hmm. So what that means is that, you know, people would be able to buy Chinese exports, you know, with, you know, lower cost. Uh, because of the cheap currency and there's the reason why you know the uh, import price uh, in the us is showing uh, this inflation pressure and i think you know the rest of the world will feel the same i mean if you look at um, the inflation numbers a large part of it is coming from food prices isn't it um and if you take the food prices out and energy prices then inflation is is rising albeit not by very much um is that something that's temporary or, or should we worry maybe that inflation is getting more entrenched in uh, deflation is getting more entrenched in China? Mm, well, if you look at the upstream uh, uh, PPI, it's been in deflationary territory for well over a year now, almost two years now. Right. Mm. So it's very difficult to imagine that, you know, those uh, uh, those costs, those uh, deflationary costs wouldn't be uh, the deflationary pressure wouldn't be passed uh, downstream to the consumer sector. And also, you're right to point out that you know food uh, price inflation has been low, but that is really the pork price, right? So the pork price is down almost fifty percent year on year because of the uh, pig flu uh, two years ago. Uh, the um, the Chinese pig farmers had to you know raise um, uh, uh, a number of piglets uh, to restock, uh, but you know unfortunately they restocked too hard, <laughs> right? So mm-hmm. uh, so you know we're, we're left with with a, a severe overcapacity. Uh, in the pig farming uh, industry. So as a result, you know, the uh, pork price is down 50% year on year in a, a very uh, important consumption uh, season uh, during the Chinese New Year. Uh, but I think even even so, if you look at the 
other uh, items uh, in the basket, uh, it is still showing at least very strong disinflationary pressure. And you know, if the Chinese authority continue to uh, ease monetary policy to boost uh, supply capacity, then one shouldn't be too hard to imagine that deflationary pressure will come to the other items as well. Mm. Uh, Andrew, I mean, we're not going to get any economic data out of China uh, this month. And then we've got on the 4th and 5th of March, the uh, the two sessions. Um, what do you think should be the, the priority for the Chinese government in terms of trying to um, boost the economy in, as we now enter the new year? Well, perhaps uh, grit their teeth and uh, clench their fists and decide to look at the causes rather than at the symptoms. In other words, they will really need to ask themselves, why are the consumers not spending? Why are the domestic investors not investing? Why foreign investors are still looking uh, with suspicion at, uh, at, uh, at stocks and shares and perhaps produce their answers? You know, their answers are politically derived, and it is far from me to say that's a one and one way only that this uh, should be done or could be done. But uh, simply killing the messenger, the messenger here being prices, it's literally, you know, evading and avoiding the cause and looking at uh, and looking at the effect. Mm. So I would like to see, let's say, an existentialist view that uh, will take place in these uh, two parallel meetings. And frankly, I have my grave doubts that this is going to happen. In other words, they may continue with more of the same which is, is uh, to say that uh, things are doing not badly. After all, the Chinese economy grew by 5%. It's hardly a, hardly a crisis. And the point is, is that the components of that are flat, and in particular, the animal spirits in terms of expectations, okay, continue to be, continue to be disappointed. Mm. Uh, the problem is that the Chinese economy is operating well below capacity, isn't it? So although the number itself uh, doesn't look too bad, um, it, it could be doing um, a, a lot better. Uh, y y yes. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, it could. Right. But then uh, the issue of uh, inflation, the issue of China exporting inflation, the role of which... Uh, the Chinese economy can be impacting the rest of the world, and therefore you have a feedback. I have a colossal doubt about that for a very, very simple reason. First, China doesn't export food, but it exports manufactured products. And manufactured products, as Hal has pointed out, have been declining in their price. I'll give you an exact number, 18 months hmm. of continuous deflation. Okay, well, it's not something which is happening now. It has been happening for a long time. And now, of course, it is being, uh, let's say, aggravated by a weaker renminbi. And take a deep breath now. Here is where I don't have an explanation. The bilateral deficit with the United States has shrunk. So it's not true that uh, the Americans are buying more than ever because Chinese goods are cheap. On a relative basis, they're buying less, despite the fact that the Chinese goods, presumably, they're cheaper, A, because the renminbi has come down, and because domestic inflation has influenced their prices, particularly the PPI. Mm. So it's not, it's not an easy world. Okay, so I'm afraid I, I would beg to differ that China is exporting inflation. It's exporting deflation. It isn't. Maybe some of those goods are being rerouted through places like Mexico, where China's building yeah, up a exactly. lot of investments, That's, and um, they're, they're sort of being disguised as Mexican exports now. 
That's 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 where like a, a like a cowardly economist will hide behind and says yes, Peter. It is a complicated world. Okay, <laughs> things happen in unexpected ways. Okay. How how what would you like to see at the uh, the two sessions? Mm, I think it's probably gonna be steady as she goes. All right, so you're probably gonna see policies uh, re-emphasize again uh, on boosting high-end manufacturing sectors and high-tech sectors, uh, trying to build China into a powerful manufacturing powerhouse, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, many of us were hoping to see, you know, more policy stimulus on the demand side. Uh, but obviously, as you can see, you know, demand in China is still weakish and people's confidence is steady, but not recovering from a very low level. Uh, so I think as a result, you know, it's you know it's the consumer price is as weak as it can be All right so um many of us were hoping to see uh policy stimulus you know say for example you know physical transfer from the state to how chinese household uh handing out consumption coupon or even cash uh and probably a tax cut you know even though it's it's going to be less effective etc etc but we're not hearing whispers <laughs> hmm. uh, across the great lines uh, on those topics. Uh, so I think for now, it's steady as she goes, you know, trying to build China into a manufacturing powerhouse and, and develop the high-tech uh, manufacturing sector. But steady as she goes is not going to be good enough, is it, for, for many investors? They're, they're hoping for more than that. Yeah, I think if you look at the overall Chinese market, it's down, like Hong Kong market is down four years in a row, you know, hmm. Across the world, you you would never see an asset price that is down like four years in a row, right? So it's just never happened in history, right? So it's it, you know what we're witnessing in the past four years is a, a really uh, a strange anomaly, uh, and also if you look at the uh, overall Chinese market, even though it's not doing particularly well, um, but I think some of the sectors are actually you know giving people a uh, very good return. You know, for example, the high yield. Uh, low cross, low volatility sectors. Uh, year today is up seven percent, more than seven percent. It's actually higher than the S and P five hundred uh, giving you, right? So, so it's not all doom and gloom. You know, there are sectors that are still giving out uh, returns, but I think overall, uh, you know, the uh, the entire Chinese market is reflecting uh, a sort of a weakish economy. But what what sectors in particular? Uh, these are uh, high dividend yield, mm, low okay. volatility, and large cap sectors. So utility stocks and, and things like that? Mm, no, things with uh, 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 China in a corporate name, like China Mobile, mm. you know, China Telecom, uh, Sinopec, that kind of stuff. Right. So things with China, uh, Sino, uh, very large SOEs, you know, they're giving out even 7% year-to-day return. Okay. Um, Andrew, it's been the year of the rabbit. It was a pretty awful month, wasn't it? As Hal mentioned, for investors here in Hong Kong, four years of losses now um, in, in a row. But even on the mainland, it hasn't, uh, it hasn't been great. Um, what are your thoughts as we now enter um, the, the year of the dragon? The year of the dragon is typically a good year um, for the markets. So are you sort of looking forward maybe to some catalysts that could potentially make it a better year? Well, I, I'm afraid unless there is some quantitative good explanation why cusps and conjunctions of stars 
somehow influence the market. <laughs> I will uh, I will say it's it's nice to hear this. And it's like having a birthday. I mean, it's a nice thing, but I have no idea why why I should be celebrating the day I was born, or I would be celebrating a particular cusp of uh, uh, of planets. Sorry, I'm exaggerating now because the Chinese the Chinese uh, the Chinese uh, astrology astrology is not is not necessarily based on on, on Western conceptions. But anyway, so uh, would I believe that because the year of the dragon in the past has been a good year, would be this year? The answer is no. I'm afraid I you know I don't have any any real reason to forecast that other than say it happens in the past, so it's going to happen in the future. The two things, however, that stay there is American interest rates are high. Therefore, our monetary policy is not determined by the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, but by Mr. Powell, and he has no intention of cutting cutting interest rates. And that has had a twin effect. It has, of course, a twin effect on uh, on the stock market, and it has an even worse effect on property. Mm-hmm. And property in Hong Kong was hit also. A triple effect was hit by what has been happening in China. So Hong Kong is not surprised, surprising that... Uh, it's looming very much down in the mouth and is very likely to stay so precisely because of the high interest rates and the poor performance of the property sector. Now, I will have to take the punch ball away completely now. What a nasty man I am by pointing out that tourism also, it's not anywhere near recovering what it was before, before COVID. And of course, this does have an impact on the property sector via the hotels Mm. and to some extent via the retail sales and therefore on the retail property sector and so on. And this is doing better, of course. Uh, Now we we ended the year with about 30 to 31 million visitors compared to what it was happening in 18, sorry, in 2017, 18 and 19, when this was double. It was 60 to 64 million tourists. And it looks as if there is a movement now of the mainlanders not coming here for a stay, but coming here for a quick uh, spending spree. Therefore, that's good news for retailers, bad news for hotels. And it's reflected exactly to what our Hong Kong companies are doing. They spring over to go and have a nice meal in Shenzhen and come back again. Mm. How, what do you make of the MSCI changes? We're going to have 66 companies removed from the MSCI China index. Its weight in the global indexes is falling now uh, to about 25%. India's weighting is going up. They're adding uh, yeah. companies to, uh, to the index. What's the significance of this? Yeah, I think MSCI came out and said that China's um, uh, factor weight uh, in the overall index hasn't changed. Right, so that's good news for China. But then having said that, you know, one should be too surprised to see because of the investability of the Chinese market uh, and also many of the Chinese companies, especially the developers, has plunged uh, mm. in price and market cap. And therefore, you know, they should be either, you know, removed from the, uh, the index because of the uninvestability or, you know, reducing weight, you know, because of the, uh, the market cap size. Uh, so we we were not surprised at all, and I think that is the reason why you know yesterday uh, you know MSCI made the announcement. I think the Hong Kong market made the comeback uh, yesterday, uh, despite a very heavy loss at the opening following the US uh, down day. Uh, so I think all in all, you know the uh, adjustment to MSCI index uh, is anticipated, you know because you know these things are scheduled uh, beforehand, and also you know over the past three years. Uh, well, past couple of years, uh, one of the major 
stories that's been going on, you know, for you know the the Chinese stocks is that you know China is going to increase in weight in the MSCI emerging market index, yeah. You know, so that people have to you know rebalance their portfolio and therefore you know they should buy uh, the uh, the Chinese market. But I think now you know because of the uh, U.S. China relationship has changed, you know there could be possibility that MSCI may not even include uh, you know some of uh, many of the Chinese stocks into the index you know, because of the investability issue and therefore you know portfolio managers are not in a hurry to uh, uh back you know many of the uh, chinese stocks to their portfolio uh, so if you look at the uh maryland survey uh, it's uh, assuming that uh long the u.s mega cap mega seven and short china is still the most crowded trade and actually gaining in favor <laughs> so it's weird you know because the Chinese market is like at its lowest uh, valuation in history, you know, one of the lowest. Uh, so, you know, at this kind of valuation level, you're seeing, you know, excessive pessimism across the board. You know, that's kind of odd um, at this stage. When you see those kind of extremes in uh, in in sentiment and and trades getting particularly crowded like that, it often turns out to be a good time to take the opposite side of that trade. Would you be tempted to do so? Mm, yes, I am tempted. I'm just waiting for a better timing. All right. So because, uh, you know, the sentiment has gone to extreme mm. uh, and also many of the things in the policy toolbox hasn't been deployed. Uh, you know, it's probably waiting for you know, approval from the top. Uh, and also, you know, before the Chinese New Year, you've seen you know, many of the changes that is already happening. For example, uh, replacing the CSRC head. Uh, and also the national team has been uh, in the market trying to stabilize, uh, spending large sum of money trying to stabilize the market, et cetera, et cetera. So you can see that, you know, it's sort of, um, um, there are many instruments, policy instruments that can be deployed, but not yet deployed. Uh, evaluation is extremely low and also sentiment towards the market is extremely pessimistic. Therefore, you know, as a contrarian investors, you know, sh you should be watching out for opportunities that is uh, coming probably anytime soon. But then at the same time, you know, because of the market momentum is so negative and you want to protect your investors' capital, and that is the reason why you're sort of trying to do do it, you know, when uh, the market trend starting to show signs of improvement instead of, you know, buying all the way down, trying to catch the falling knife. Uh, so, you know, there are many considerations. Uh, but I think uh, uh, China uh, in the year of the dragon, you know, after after falling, you know, four years in a row. So if you, I mean, it could it could fall for another year, but you know, in probability uh, speaking, and also you know, judging from the history, uh, the likelihood is actually quite small. Mm. Andrew, would you be tempted to take the other side of that crowded trade and start selling some of these U.S. mega cap tech stocks and instead buy some some good quality Chinese companies? I'm afraid I will do neither of those things because my my naive but uh, consistent view is I will not tell my clients to start buying equities in the United States until and when the Fed cuts and to follow it. I know they would have lost the big jump, but that's the way it is. And in the case of China, I will buy Chinese stocks at the back of some very significant policy changes. Mm. If, I'm, if I'm going to wait for the macroeconomics uh, to, to play along, uh, it's going to be six to a nine month period. So, you know, I, do, I don't have an event in China, except, you know, perhaps we're going to have the, the twin meetings 
in in March, and some policy decisions may come out, but uh, I'm not holding my breath over that. So for the time being, I'm staying negative to very cautious on equities, with the exception of Japan. I like Japan because it's completely off the wall and completely against everything else which is going in the world. Mm. Everybody wants less inflation, the Japanese won't know. Everybody have kept high interest rates, the Japanese have kept zero to negative interest rates, and they're still not increasing. And it looks, Delicious. looks like it's going to get back to an all-time high, doesn't it? It's uh, yeah. only maybe another thousand points or so to go on the Nikkei, and it gets back to its uh, December 1989 high. Um, how tell me what you think about these uh, support measures that the the Chinese government is coming out with all sorts of talk about stabilization funds changing the head of the regulator the CSRC are, are you convinced by those measures are they going to work mm, I think for for now it's a stabilizing the market you know because you know there are you know structured products in in the marketplace that is dragging the market down right so uh, you know, the funds, the national teams, uh, uh, rescue and also replacing of the CSRC head, you know, are all significant, uh, moves, uh, to trying to stabilize the market. Uh, um, having said that though, I, I think, you know, people were, you know, really looking for, uh, uh, stimulus or, or some sort of supporting measure, uh, to the market and also to the economy. But I think one thing that people felt to talk about. Uh, is the structural change in the Chinese economy, right? So from the industrial structure to the export structure, it has changed dramatically. And this is the thing that people hasn't been talked about enough, right? So for example, do people know that the value-added industry contributing is now contributing more to the GDP growth than the property sector, right? So that is probably many people didn't know, a fact that many people didn't know. And also the export structure, the U.S., economy has become less important to Chinese exports in the sense that, you know, U.S. used to be uh, the top uh, export destination for Chinese exports, but now it's slipped to second or third. Southeast Asia, the Asian nations has been, you know, the top uh, export destination for Chinese exports. Uh, so as you can see, the Chinese exports, uh, the uh, the trade surplus with the U.S. or the uh, 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 the U.S. versus China, the trade deficit uh, is coming down. But then Chinese exports uh, surplus uh, to the Asian nation uh, is going up. It's actually going through the roof. And also the trades with Russia uh, and also Middle Eastern countries as well. So this is a, a dramatic shift and it's be beginning to be reflected uh, in the uh, in the global, uh, in the uh, Chinese reserve management. You know, for example, uh, cross-border uh, payment uh, in, in terms of currency, uh, the Chinese RMB has, has been the top uh, currency for settlement for cross-border trades. And many people didn't know that. So there are significant structural change. I think pe when people look at the Chinese economy, there's so much misunderstanding in the sense that, you know, it's, it's still trying to follow the old playbook, you know, to, you know, to see, oh, you know, what can be done or what policy should come out to support the economy uh, and the market. But, you know, just now, uh, as I mentioned that, you know, even for the market, you know, the uh, pockets of opportunities are in place that is giving out good returns. And for the entire uh, Chinese economy, if we continue to stimulate the Chinese property sector and, you know, foregoing the, uh, the, uh, the rising opportunities in the higher manufacturing and high-tech sectors and also the consumer sectors, 
we're probably gonna you know push the um, push the Chinese economy over the cliff. Uh, so I think right now uh, a structural change takes time. You know, it probably takes five to ten years. And over these five to ten years, you're probably gonna see a, you know difficult sort of a, a, a restructuring, massive layoff. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the similar things happened in 1998, you know, between 1998 and 2003, and there was a, a tremendous uh, sort of uh, uh, restructuring going on in the Chinese economy, right? So we, we restructured the SOEs, uh, we shuffled the uh, uh, shareholder structure, uh, changed the uh, interest rate uh, uh, policy, and also uh, restructured the uh, Forex uh, exchange rate uh, formulation uh, formulas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you know those are the five years that is you know that the, the Chinese economy saw huge significant change uh, in those five years, and then after that, uh, it was a, a very long and prosperous period for the Chinese economy as well. I think right now you know people just have to you know look at both. Uh, you know, what is going on uh, in terms of opportunities and also, you know, some of the risks uh, that is uh, uh, rising from this restructuring uh, and also the geopolitical uh, risks such as the Sino-US relationship is also sort of uh, uh, working in the background, uh, holding back uh, some of the changes that is happening. And Andrew has said the point there on the on the restructuring. It's putting China in direct competition, really, isn't it, with the US and the in the EU as it moves up the value chain. It's now competing with um, the, the the high That's tech right. sectors um, that traditionally uh, Europe and and the US have been good at. For those of us old enough to remember Japan, my God, this is absolutely boring, uh, Peter. It's exactly what has happened with Japan uh, back in the late 60s, 70s, and 80s, mm. when competition with the United States became so bitter that uh, there were political issues about rediscovering Pearl Harbor <laughs> and using the atom bomb again on Japan. So yes, mm. that's the way it is going. Uh, is China's specific aim to compete? No, it's China's specific aim will become a big industrial economy. And why they are obsessed with industrial Economics is because value added is much higher. The standard of living depends much more on manufactured goods as opposed to fresh pork and vegetables. And hence, the nice, let's say, Arcadian kind of an economy where everybody lives happily ever after on beautiful countryside and they raise their own food is, is really not only a thing of the past, but it is non-feasible because then uh, you will never be a powerful economy. So. That was a long-winded answer to saying, yes, they are, and yes, they not necessarily think that we're doing this in order to beat those Europeans or to beat those Americans, but it is because that's the way the rest of the world is going, and we're going that way as well. Um, Electric motor cars, the classical case, okay? Mm. Well, we'd love to continue the discussion longer. Fascinating uh, comments there. But sadly, we've run out of time. Thank you both very much. You heard there Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Hao Hong, who is Chief Economist at Grow Investment Group. I'm joined now by Vandana Hari, who is founder of Vanda Insights. Morning, Vandana. Good morning, Peter. A uh, rather volatile time for the oil markets at the moment, isn't it? We've, uh, we saw them um, uh, show some strong gains earlier in the week, gave them all up um, overnight. It still seems the Middle East is the, the main driver at the moment. Oh, it very much is. 
so crude uh, remains quite buoyant, uh, and we've seen this since the start of last week uh, because of ongoing concerns over the Gaza war. Um, earlier, we had seen crude retreat uh, as uh, the prospect of a ceasefire came into view, uh, but th those um, uh, possibilities have now retreated, and so crude has stacked on uh, some risk premium. Uh, again, to be very clear, supplies, supply volumes from the Middle East have not been uh, impacted by what's going on in Gaza or by the Houthi attacks uh, in the Red Sea. They have uh, forced tankers to take a longer route uh, via the Cape of Good Hope, but uh, the actual supplies from the Middle East have remained uh, stable. Uh, so it's a, a bit of a tricky situation for the oil market, uh, as in, you know, what to, what exactly, what sort of risk to factor in is very hard to say. But nonetheless, I would say there's easily about five to six dollars of risk premium in crude prices right now. Mm. Okay, but of course, the other the other aspect to all of this is the demand side of the equation as well. We seem to be getting some rather wildly differing estimates from what global demand is going to look like, depending upon whether you ask OPEC or the EIA. Um, not not very consistent numbers at the moment. Yes, that has become uh, quite a problematic uh, situation for the oil market. Whether you look at short term, medium term, long term. Uh, over the past few months, uh, the uh, sort of rival narratives uh, put out by the International Energy Agency and OPEC uh, have become quite a point of discussion in the oil markets, uh, with the IEA increasingly taking uh, quite a bearish view on global oil demand uh, and uh, the OPEC insisting, maintaining that oil demand growth remains quite robust. Uh, the main difference between the two arises from the IEA taking a far more optimistic view of how uh, traditional fossil fuel consumption is being replaced and will be replaced uh, by alternative energies. And uh, on the ground, you know, especially uh, in, in Asia, and you know, I was at uh, a major energy conference in India last week, India Energy Week, uh, on the ground, you hear a much more pragmatic view from um, policymakers and energy market stakeholders that uh, a lot of the um, replacement is uh, that perhaps the IEA is taking into account uh, in terms of fossil fuels is wishful thinking. You know, the uh, emphasis here in developing uh, countries remains on energy accessibility, affordability. So um, I would think that perhaps, uh, you know, the IEA is downplaying uh, the role of fossil fuels uh, in the coming years and, and decades. We'll see how it shakes out. But for the, for the time being, it's, it's, it is um, a major challenge for the oil market because all said and done, you want to have some sort of reliable, tangible mm. uh, expectations of the next 5, 10, 15 years. And especially when you're uh, investing uh, billions of dollars and, you know, major upstream projects or downstream projects like refineries. And the market is, is left scratching its head, especially between these two starkly different scenarios being painted by the two. 
And if OPEC has a, a rather bullish outlook for um, global demand, it, it sort of begs the question, why are they cutting um, output? Is, is there any sign that those cuts uh, that were made last year are going to be reversed? Yeah, so that is also uh, adding to the confusion. It's quite counterintuitive. You see OPEC's monthly report and its latest report came out uh, just earlier this week, uh, maintains a, a str- continuing strong demand growth this year, you know, close to 2 million barrels per day. And yet OPEC uh, last December decided to cut output, at least for the first quarter of this year. And the expectations are that they will uh, maintain this additional cut. They'll roll this over into the second quarter as well. So uh, I would imagine uh, OPEC uh, is itself struggling to get a handle, at least their analysts are struggling to get a handle over how uh, global oil demand growth will pan out this year. Uh, I think a lot of it depends on uh, how the global economy shapes up, you know, what happens, especially in the U.S., also with regard to uh, the uh, Fed's rate cuts. Uh, we know that there has been a lot of uh, mood swings in the markets based on expectations of how, how much, how soon uh, the Fed will cut rates. So uh, on, the, on the demand side, uh, you know, it's somewhere between perhaps a little bit bearish compared like with last year to, uh, you know, same as last year, which would be the case in a good, strong economic growth scenario. And where does the US fit into this? Is the US still, is its production still at record highs or close to record highs? So if you look at US production and US consumption, you know, which is equally important being the biggest consumer, uh, again, a, a picture of contrast there. So yes, US production is actually was on a very strong growth path in 2023. It's surprised to the upside with a 1.1 million barrel per day year on year growth to, to new record highs, uh, close to 13 million barrels per day. Uh, the growth rate is expected to uh, come down substantially this year. Uh, but nonetheless, the U.S. is now, by a big margin, the biggest producer uh, in the world. Uh, growth in um, other countries that are outside uh, OPEC+, plus, uh, you know, Guyana, Brazil, Canada, uh, is also quite strong. So there's plenty of supply coming uh, into the markets. If you look at uh, U.S. oil demand, however, it remains well below 2019 levels. So uh, what is clear is that the U.S. is not um, not going to recover its pre-COVID demand, demand ever. Uh, the U.S. And, and for that matter, OECD Europe are both well past their historic oil demand peaks, uh, which means it's only going to be a downtrend from here. And uh, all the demand growth is going to come from Asia. Now, of course, China, though at a much slower rate than what we've seen over the past two decades, and um, India. India is expected to contribute um, much stronger demand growth uh, than China in, in the coming years. Now, India is becoming quite significant, isn't it, in terms of the global market uh, for, for energy? And also, it's going to join the International Energy Agency, I, I believe, which is also a significant move, isn't it? Yes, it's a little bit curious uh, to my mind because the IEA uh, is actually um, an organization of uh, the developed countries uh, and India, as we know, is still an uh, emerging economy. Um, You know, 
I would have thought that perhaps it would join as an observer because, um, you know, clearly uh, the likes of IEA, OPEC are becoming more interested in uh, keeping their ears closer to the ground in India in terms of getting a better handle of uh, what's uh, the oil demand, oil production, you know, and getting good data from the country. So um, we'll see. It, I think it will take some time for the IEA to uh, make a decision and formally include India. Uh, but I think, you know, more than anything, it is a signal of uh, the emergence of uh, the importance of India on the global stage uh, in terms of just the world needing to understand more of what's happening in the country and what to expect of the country's energy demand growth. Uh, not just demand growth, but how it will pan out between the traditional fossil fuels and newer forms of energy and cleaner forms of energy like renewables and biofuels. I mean, India is going to be um, have some significant energy needs. Aren't it? We we saw in the budget a couple of a uh, couple of weeks ago they're spending record amounts on uh, on infrastructure, building new roads and railways and, and ports, um, and and so on. And also they want to move up the value chain, develop um, you know electric vehicles as a as a major industry. This is all going to require uh, significant energy needs. Absolutely. So India is reaping uh, the demographic dividend, uh, possibly at least until the end of this decade and possibly into next decade as well uh, before uh, the demographic dividend starts to wane as well. Because again, let's keep in mind that India's population growth has already fallen below the replacement rate of 2.1%. So, you know, it would be wrong to uh, draw a you know, straight uh, upward curve from here. But nonetheless, uh, the, this is India's decade, no doubt. And exactly as you mentioned, uh, the post-COVID economic rebound has been accelerated and amplified by major unprecedented investment in infrastructure by the Modi government, which uh, they promised to continue with that sort of investment into the the coming financial year as well. So, you know, when you're building infrastructure, that in itself requires uh, more energy, more oil. Uh, But also when you, once you build the infrastructure, you know, you have better highways, uh, uh, bigger airports, you find people traveling more as well. Uh, You know, which is again, something I've seen firsthand on the ground in, in India, which is happening as well, which also then means more oil consumption. So, Uh, At this uh, moment, India has a very strong momentum uh, for energy consumption growth as well as oil consumption growth. But I would expect that to sort of start uh, moderating, but perhaps uh, not until next decade. India's become the master, hasn't it, at sourcing oil at uh, at very low prices on the international markets, whether it comes from Russia or Venezuela or or elsewhere. They they have really taken advantage of some of the the, the problems in the world, really. Yeah, that's that's an interesting uh, topic, Peter, because, you know, you you look at India, you say, okay, it's uh, energy demand growth uh, is is phenomenal. It's also becoming more dependent on imports, uh, you know, because it's its own, its domestic production of uh, crude and uh, natural gas is very, very modest. Uh, you know, India last year imported uh, 90% of, of the crude it needed. Uh, it imports about 45% of the natural gas that it consumes. Uh, and then you think, uh, okay, and, and look at what's happening geopolitically in the world outside. And this clearly doesn't bode well for the country. But perhaps counterintuitively, but, you know, I would say 
happily, uh, India is really coming into its own on the international stage. It's learning. To, we've seen that at COP28 as well. Uh, but we've, we've seen India make the most of these massive geopolitical shifts and trade shifts that we've seen post-Ukraine war. Uh, India imported close to 40% of its crude uh, from Russia, which means, you know, 40% of its crude came at a, a, a very substantial discount to, you know, what it might have normally bought in the international markets. And um, again, as the uh, U.S. has lifted or uh, suspended uh, oil sanctions against Venezuela, uh, India has uh, turned to, to buy some Venezuelan crude as well. Uh, nowhere near as much as, as the Russian crude that it can consume. There's limitations on how much Venezuelan crude India can get. And Venezuela is, a, of course, a, a much smaller producer as well. Um, but nonetheless, uh, India is learning how to navigate, uh, to not just survive, but perhaps thrive uh, in this environment of growing geopolitical flux. And, and what is India doing in terms of renewables? So it's quite ambitious uh, targets, uh, in, uh, especially on solar power. Um, and, uh, you know, solar power costs have gone down tremendously, which is, uh, you know, a, a huge advantage to the country. But all said and done, you know, 50% of Indian power comes from coal. So what we need to remember is despite these ambitious targets on, on renewable power uh, in India, it will take a long time for the country to wean itself off uh, coal. And I think that's, uh, that's key to remember. So for India, you know, when it comes to energy, it's about security, affordability, uh, and reliability of supply as far as it's uh, dependent on uh, imports for its energy needs. Uh, that means uh, the Indian policymakers are going to continue taking an all of the above approach. You know, they can't afford to say no to anything, whether it's fossil fuels, or it is newer forms of energy. Vandana, always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Peter. That's Vandana Hari, who is founder of Vanda Insights. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's program, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Sam Favur, CEO at Mandarin Capital, with a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, the CEO of Staten Partners. Bye for now. Money Talk.